All right, we are in 2 Kings chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 8. I'll remind you, if you have an electronic device, be sure the sound is off. I know many of you use it as your Bible, and that's wonderful. 2 Kings chapter 8, last week we finished with verse 20. Where Edom has once again become Israel's foe, revolting, that was the word we studied last week, revolting from the ones whom they used to serve. And let's just dive right into verse 21, 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 21. So Joram went over to Zaire and all the chariots with him, and he rose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him about. And the captains of the chariots and the people fled into their tents. Now this is an earthly example of what happens when a country revolts against its own protector. And not only had Edom, the country, divorced Judah, whom they served, But Edom had also made a king over herself. And that foolish king thought it was wise to rise up against Judah. And that foolish thought led his own army to suffer defeat. And in our text in verse 21, about midway, you see the phrase, compassed him about or compassed him about, however you want to pronounce it. The Edomites actually had Joram's army surrounded at Zaire, but Judah prevailed anyway. Now, that doesn't make any earthly sense, does it? The great U.S. Marine General Chesty Puller once said, We've been looking for the enemy for some time now. We finally found him. We're surrounded. That simplifies the problem. Now, you can't quote a lot of things he said, but I don't mind quoting that one. And indeed, the problem is simplified when God is fighting for his people. It doesn't matter if God's people are surrounded or not by the enemy. God has them surrounded, doesn't he? You'll never surround God. Did you ever notice that in the Bible? You don't ever read that somebody had God surrounded. Now, remember, Judah prevailed over Edom here. Not because Judah was righteous. This wasn't about this wonderfully righteous king and his obedient people prevailing once again. This was not about that at all. They prevailed over Edom because God was righteous and he was faithful. He was faithful to his promise concerning David, who lived hundreds of years before this. God would not allow Judah to be destroyed. Because if he did, if he allowed all from the tribe of Judah to be destroyed, then the light of David would be extinguished, wouldn't it? And we know from the Bible that from the seed of David would one day come the birth of the Son of God. So no matter how narrow it got for that line from David to Jesus, no matter how close you might think, how much of a close call it was 
that that line could be cut off. It was impossible. Verse 22, yet, in other words, in spite of this defeat at Zaire, yet Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. That means unto the day of the writing of this passage. Then Libnah revolted at the same time. The answer to why this happened is found in the prior verse. How is it that Edom could still revolt after the people were defeated at Zaire? Because the captains of the chariots and the people fled into their tents. That tells us Judah left some Edomites alive. If you ever wondered why God told his people to totally destroy their enemies, to wipe them completely out, it's so this wouldn't happen. And Israel, and now we have to say Israel and Judah, the countries have been divided, never did obey that promise completely. And incomplete obedience is disobedience, isn't it? If your child is told to take the trash out to the curb, and now, boy, you better have that polycart right there at the curb and not somewhere else. And your child pushes it three quarters down the driveway and says, all right, I took the trash out. No, you didn't. What happens when the trash truck comes? Trash doesn't get picked up. Incomplete obedience. So this tells us that Judah left some Edomites alive in, even in Zaire. And the rest of Edom was untouched. And just like cockroaches, the enemies will multiply until they're exterminated completely. What's the rule if you see a cockroach in your house? There's a hundred more like it somewhere, aren't there? Maybe more than that. I think cockroaches are like feral hogs. Out of every seven born, eight survive. We've got some mathematical minds in here, don't we? I like that. Verse 22, now Edom's revolted. What does it say after that? It said, then Libnah revolted at the same time. Now this is also what happens when a nation leaves God's protection. Came out from under God's authority, you come out from under God's protection. Just like Adam, we studied it last week in detail. Their enemies... Israel's enemies, or here Judah's enemies, were emboldened because another enemy had risen up. Now, nobody dared rise up when David was the king. Well, he put them down with authority, and they served him and became tributaries to Israel, which was not a divided country in those days. He was a strong king. No, he wasn't perfect. No king has ever been perfect except for one. And that's Jesus. When our president goes to China and hugs up with the dictator or bows low like a servant to the Saudi Arabian prince or king, the nations that once feared us now laugh at us, and they do. So they rise up just like Libnah rose up when Edom rose up. Edom went first, and then here came Libnah. Libnah was given to the tribe of Judah back in Joshua chapter 15, verse 42. And that chapter and the surrounding chapters contain 
the lots of land that were given to the various tribes of the children of Israel when they got into the promised land. In fact, Joshua had defeated Libnah in a battle back in Joshua chapter 10. And in Joshua 15, God gave Libnah to the tribe of Judah. And now what they forfeited to sin has risen up and bitten them, just like Edom did. They forfeited Edom because of sin. Edom's risen up and bitten them. Well, there's good application in our own lives to that, isn't there? The sin that you go after, the sin that you obey, will rise up and bite you. The commandment of God you disregard will rise up and bite you. It's a guarantee. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It is a natural law. It is a spiritually natural law, isn't it? Let's look at verse 23. And the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now, for those of you who weren't here when we first ran across this phrase, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, you may have made the mistake in the past of thinking, well, everything else that Joram did is written in the book of First or Second Chronicles. Well, it's not. The Chronicles of the Kings of Judah might be typical of uh, a daily log that we keep in a government agency or perhaps in a business you do that. You write down all the things that happen or you enter them on a computer. And those are your chronicles. Those are daily chronicles. And they certainly had those back in the days of the kings of Judah and Israel. So there were a lot of things that were written that we don't have here. But that's okay. We don't have all of recorded history written in the Bible, do we? It's not necessary. What we have is what God wants us to have regarding his word. Now, the rest of the Acts. Well, if the ones we've read about so far were the headlines of Joram's reign, I feel certain the rest of the Acts wouldn't be any better. We're not missing out on some wonderful news about this man. Those verses we read are his legacy. How about this for a leader's legacy? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He married a wicked woman, and his enemies rose up against them and encouraged other enemies to do so. Why? Sin. It's the same answer I'll give you if you ask, Brother Andy, why do you think our country's in such bad shape? I'm going to give you one word answer. It's sin. You might think, well, isn't it this party's fault or that party fault or, or this person or what about this leader? If this guy was just our president, listen, all that does is just make the wave do this. It doesn't eliminate the problem. Sin is the problem. Why is there famine sin? Why are there so many deadly diseases? Well, sin. It's not because we don't have the right vaccine. It doesn't, it's not because we don't have the right cure. Those are temporary things, earthly things. Why are many people poor? Sin. Why are many people wealthy? Sin. Why is this country in a death spiral? It's the same answer. It's sin. One day, if the Lord further tarries his coming, there will be history books, or nowadays it's on Wikipedia, isn't it? However reliable that may be. 
But those historical accounts will tell about what happened to the United States before its fall. And if you're arrogant enough to think this country will never fall, then you're too arrogant. I don't want it to fall. I'm very blessed to live here. I'm thankful for my country and the religious freedom upon which it was founded. I'm not thankful for all of the wicked things that have been done in this country and by this country. But I'm thankful for how God has blessed us. But there will come a day, just like the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and the Babylonians and all of those empires that nobody thought would go away. There were empires in, in China that lasted near a thousand years. And everybody thought, well, those, that empire will live forever. No, it won't. And one day, I want to know this. What will be written about the rest of the acts of the United States? I fear it won't read any better than Joram's epitaph right here. Nowhere does the Bible tell us things are going to get better and better and better before Jesus comes. No. It says that sin will abound, iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold, that the people will be just as they were in the days of Noah. And that wasn't good. Because the thoughts of their heart were evil. Their imaginations were evil continually. Verse 24, and Joram slept with his fathers. And that simply is an expression meaning he died just like his forefathers did. His grandfather and uncles and all of those that preceded him, he died just like they did. And sometimes in the Bible, you'll see the word sleep or slept instead of the word died or death. And every time we read this phrase in the study of the kings, that is, slept with his fathers, we ought to be reminded that we also, one day, will sleep with our fathers in death. It's unavoidable. And may our prayer be that the rest of our acts on this earth as Christians glorify God. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you can't say, well, now, I'm, not, I'm not a believer yet, but I'm still going to glorify God. That's a walking contradiction. You can't do you can't reject the son of God for salvation and yet say your life is pleasing to the Lord. It's not. Verse 25 and 26, I'll read these together. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. 2 and 20 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. A lot of names there, but they're before you if you feel the need to memorize them. But let's look at what our text said. And and lest you get these Jorams and Jehorams mixed up, remember, one of them's dead and one of them's still alive. So don't get too tangled up about which Joram is Jehoram. And this one-year reign... What does it say about Ahaziah? He's going to reign one year in Jerusalem. That's not a good sign, is it? That's not a good forecast. And if you wonder who held the record for the shortest reign in the Bible, we've studied him. It's been a while. That was Zimri, Zimri, king of Israel, and he was on the throne for a whopping seven days. 
back in 1 Kings chapter 16. You see, he committed treason to get through the throne, to the throne. He killed his king. And then he was quickly put down by a fire. So what mischief is going to befall Ahaziah in his one-year reign? Well, we'll read some about it. Verse 27, and he, that's Ahaziah, the new king, walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Boy, the sins of the house of Ahab were far-reaching, weren't they? Do you remember how many kings had as their epitaph that they did evil like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? We kept reading that. King after king did evil just like Jeroboam, walked in his way. And now we've seen this about the house of Ahab who did more wickedly than the house of Jeroboam. And so we know here that Ahaziah was a spiritual midget, wasn't he? He was not a great spiritual man. He may have been an impressive-looking king, maybe mighty in stature, had an aura about him, but he was a spiritual midget. One of the things that stood out to me here at the end of verse 27 is that he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. When you pick a wife, you better first get to know her parents. Some of us have learned that. When I say us, I don't mean me. I had a wonderful mother-in-law and father-in-law. But us, the collective people, la gente, have failed in that. And I was thankful to have a good relationship. In fact, I met my mother-in-law before I met my wife. She and I were already friends. And my father-in-law, we went on a few fishing trips together and So when I married my wife, I married them too. I was glad to have them. But Ahaziah yoked himself together with another unbeliever, and it said he did evil in God's sight. Now verse 28 and 29, And he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to the war against Hazael, king of Syria, in Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now let's back up in time just a little bit and remember what Elisha, the prophet, prophesied concerning Hazael. He told about the wit. In fact, Elisha wept before Hazael, before Hazael was the king, when Hazael's king Ben-Hadad was still alive, but sick. And Hazael said, why are you weeping? Why are you crying, Elisha? And Elisha said, because I know the wickedness you're going to do to Israel, ripping up their women with child and killing their young men with the sword. And we read about that. And if Ahaziah would have kept in mind what Elisha prophesied about Hazael, he would have done everything he could to keep from going to war with Hazael and the Syrians. He would have known that when Elisha said Hazael was going to do evil to the children of Israel, that was as good as done. He was the man of God. He was God's prophet. 
Elisha. But Ahaziah obviously took these words lightly. I presume he heard of them. When God's prophet, here I'm talking about Elisha, when God's prophet weeps over the things that will bring us harm, shouldn't we run from it and not to it? When your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, your dad, your mom, your husband, your wife, is reading the Bible, and you hear something and you say, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like the way it says that. Well, you've already got the wrong attitude that came from the Bible. And if it's something that God has said is bad for you, you ought to run from it. And if you're doing it, you ought to stop. It's, it's bad for you. I'm not even talking about your salvation right now. If you're saved and you read something from God's word and it says it's bad for you, the Spirit of God bearing witness with you will say, get away from that. Don't do that anymore. But if you're not a Christian, perhaps you do as many. Well, that's not really that big a deal. It's not that bad. I had that conversation with my sweet 10-year-old granddaughter yesterday who, uh, she's 10 and she'll be 13 next year. <sighs> Y'all ever raised one like that? Yeah. We had that conversation about big rules and little rules and uh, she's already got those things in her mind and, you know, that's, a, that's what Satan does to us. He tries to tell us, now God didn't really mean that. He did that in the garden, didn't he? He said, even though Eve told the serpent, God said that we'll die if we touch or eat of this tree. And Satan said, you won't die. He just straight up contradicted God. So here we have Ahaziah, as Eve did, not taking God's words seriously. And now look what's happened. What did Adam and Eve do after God told them, don't, touch, don't eat of that tree? They went to it, and they ate, and death reigned over them. And Ahaziah ran toward that which was prophesied to bring him harm, even death. And because of that, it says the Syrians wounded Joram. Because of Ahaziah's consent to engage in this ill-advised attack on Hazael and the Syrians, another king was wounded. I've seen people write, maybe you've seen this before, a true friend is one who, not who keeps you out of jail, but who sits in jail with you. Well, that's foolish thinking. Don't ever enlist the help or join in the partaking of something God forbids. Don't get someone else to do it with you, and don't go join them. Just say no. That was a tired cliche years ago, but... It's true. Just say no. Just don't do it. And it says in verse 29, Then King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah. Wounds he would not have suffered if he had stayed home and walked with the Lord. And Ahaziah the son of Joram, king of Judah, Judah went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. And that's a trip Ahaziah would not have had to make 
if he and Joram had both stayed home and walked with the Lord. God was trying to save them from harm. And what did they do? They went right to it. You tell your child when they're little, don't touch that. And what do they do? They run right to it, don't they? They want to see what the big deal is with those two little slots in the wall that supposedly make the TV come on when you plug something into it. They want to try it with bobby pin or something, don't they? See if it really works. And it does. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Elisha is about to send a prophet. Now here he's called a son of a prophet, but you'll see in a few verses he's also called a prophet. He's about to send a young prophet to Ramoth-Gilead. Now this was a place that belonged to the children of Israel, but the Syrians had once again contested it, had taken it over. Elisha is not going himself, although this assignment is a very dangerous one. You know, in every ministry, and boy, Elisha had a ministry. In every ministry, there comes a time when the elders must gradually and sometimes even suddenly begin sharing the responsibilities of the ministry with the younger men. And that's why it's so important to equip those younger men with God's word. We can't afford to give them any other set of instructions in here. We don't have the time, first of all, second of all, that's the priority, to give them the instructions from God's word. How do you do this ministry? What do you do? On whom do you lean? Where should you go? The Apostle Paul started the Lord's church in Crete. Now, Jesus started the Lord's church, but... The Lord's church, the geographical location in Crete, in Crete, the people who met there. And Paul established that by the grace of God. But in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he left Titus there to perform some pretty heavy duties of the ministry. Here's what he said to Titus in this letter. For this cause left I thee in Crete. What does that mean? He left Titus in Crete and he didn't stay. That thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, that is the things that are lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Now that's a pretty heavy set of responsibilities, isn't it? To set in order the things that are wanting. In other words, whatever still needs to be done, Titus, you have to do it. I'm not going to be here. And I need you to ordain elders in every city, just like yourself, just like you. And then the qualifications of those elders were given, as we've been studying on Sunday mornings. You know, Paul could have taken care of these matters himself. But one thing he knew is that he wouldn't always be around to do so. And he certainly couldn't do every man's work by himself. And that wasn't God's plan anyway. Now, not everyone has the gifts and the calling of the ministry as Titus did. God gifts men differently. Not everybody's gifted to be a teacher or a pastor. 
But everyone is a witness, right? Don't ever say, well, I don't have the gift to teach, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. No, don't do that. Brother Doug and I were fellowshipping about that this morning. You're at work and somebody asks you a question. If you've got a scripture, give it to them. But the Apostle Paul gave these responsibilities to Titus. And I fear there are some today in churches who have the ability to teach, to pastor, but they won't exercise them. They say, not me. And that's sad. The Apostle Paul also left young Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy was so young that the Apostle Paul warned him not to let others despise his youth. Don't let them look down on you just because you're young. And Paul handed Timothy the baton here in 1 Timothy 1.18. 1 Timothy 1.18. Listen to how he says it. He said, this charge, that's a commandment, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou, might, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. A charge is a commandment. Paul gave it to Timothy, said, here you go. He is the Ephesian pastor. Paul can't be there all the time. So it's not a strange thing in our text for Elisha to send another young son of a prophet to do the work of the Lord, because Elisha wouldn't always be here either. Now verse 2, Elisha continues telling this young prophet what to do. And he said, and when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Now this assignment would require this young prophet to be bold and to be exact. He was to go to Ramoth Gilead and to find a certain person, Jehu. He wasn't told to give this assignment to someone else. And not only was he supposed to find Jehu, and we'll realize what a, an imposing character Jehu is here in a minute. Not only was this young prophet supposed to find Jehu specifically, but he was supposed to get him to separate from the rest of his brethren, to come into an inner chamber, a room. He was to call him away from his comrades and go into a private location with him. Verse 3, the instructions continue. Then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. This young prophet was not allowed to hand off the box of ointment to one of Jehu's friends and say, Hey, do you know a guy named Jehu? You do? Would you give this to him? No. That wasn't the assignment. He wasn't to hand it to someone and say, Hey, look, I dare not do this, but if you're good friends with Jehu, would you pour this anointing oil on his head and tell him God said he's going to be the king over Israel? No, this was a direct assignment to this young prophet to go and do these things. Sometimes God sends his people to a place. Sometimes he sends them to a people. But in this occasion, he sent through Elisha 
this young prophet to a person, a specific person. Now listen from Acts chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Acts chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And Saul, and you should know that is the Apostle Paul, same person. His name's changed later on. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And when there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive sight. Now Saul had just had his sight taken from him when he was encountered by the Lord, whom he had been persecuting, but now upon whom he believed. He was blind, he was tired, he was hungry. Imagine if Ananias would have just said, well, uh, I don't really want to go over to Judas's house. I'll just send a message to Judas to have the Apostle Paul come see me. Or if the Apostle Paul had been led somewhere else besides the house of Judas for Ananias to have contact with him, he'd have ended up blind, wouldn't he? He'd have died a blind man. Remember, he was now vulnerable. His sight had been taken away, and he was about to go to the house of one named Judas, not Iscariot. What a good time this would have been to get even with Saul in his weakened condition. If you remember, before this, he was a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he had received letters to persecute. The deacon Stephen had already been killed by his consent. So Saul had to exercise his faith to do what Jesus told him to do. Ananias had to exercise his faith to do what Jesus told him to do. And look in our text, it says the instructions are for this young prophet, take the box of oil and pour it on his head, that is on Jehu's head. Once you found him, once you separated him from his brethren, took him to an inner room, I want you to pour this box of oil on his head. What a daring thing to do. We're going to read in a moment, if we get there, that Jehu was the captain of the army. That didn't mean he had two bars, that meant he was in charge. The word captain meaning differently than we apply it today. He was in charge of the military. So he was probably uh, quite a battle-hardened, tough customer. And this young prophet was going to run in there and pour some oil on his head. Now, from an earthly perspective, you might say, well, that's a good way to have to pick up your teeth off the ground. But this young prophet wasn't afraid to do so. That captain could have torn him in half. So the young prophet better be trusting in what God said, and that Elisha was right. Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Even bolder was this statement, because Jehu was not only not the king, but he was the captain of the military. He was to be loyal. If there was anybody who had to be loyal to the king, and in whom the king had to trust, it was the leader of his military. History bears that out. And a good captain would normally execute someone who made such a treasonous 
statement such as this. The Lord has anointed you to be king over Israel when that king was still alive. And after the assignment, the young prophet was told, after you do all that, then open the door and flee and tarry not. That means don't hang around. And this kept it simple, didn't it? Although the assignment was a big assignment, it was a simple assignment. It wasn't complex at all. And this is a good way to start out a young prophet with a simple, singular assignment. Send him on it and see how he does. And when he comes back, then what do you do next time? Give him another one and give him another one and add to it. When my dad would let me help him change the oil in his car when I was a little boy, He gave me the job of gopher, and I thought I was the only gopher in the world, but he gave me the job of gopher. If you're not from here, that's an expression we use in Texas and probably other places. Son, go for that and go for that. Go get this and go go get that. I was an errand boy. And he would send me to fetch one thing. It might be a tool. It might be the spout back when we used oil cans that young folks have never seen before, and bring it back to him. Now, he didn't give me a lot of assignments at one time, and he didn't give me a complex assignment as a little boy. And if I could do them right, then he'd give me another one. But what if Dad had said, son, go bring me the car? Well, I didn't know how to drive. I didn't even know how to start a car. That wouldn't be wise, but instead he'd send me to bring the keys to him. And Elisha made this prophet's task simple. The prophet was to tarry not. Now, how tempting might it have been to go in there as a young prophet? Now, he's way down the totem pole, way down the ladder in rank. He's a son of a prophet. How tempting would it have been for him to pour the anointing oil, give the word from the Lord, have Jehu accept that call and say, Hey, son, what kind of work do you do? Well, I'm the son of a prophet. I'm an errand boy. How would you like to be my right-hand man? That would have been tempting. Elisha said, tarry not. There are a lot of things that could befall you. Tarry not. And in verse 4, So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, see it calls him a prophet here, went to Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead, that place that once belonged to Israel, was now again a contested territory. And yet, without fear of death, this young prophet went. He didn't fear death at the hands of the Syrians. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body. That's what the Syrians would have done. But are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You fear God, not man. Are you afraid of where the Lord's call will take you? And I'll tell you that perhaps the living room of your own home is contested territory because of the people who are there. So is your workplace because of the people who are there. You have a mixed multitude living around you. You may say, well, Brother Andy, everybody in my house is a Christian. Wonderful. Is everybody in your entire extended family a Christian? Probably not. Not in mine. And it's sad. That's who I pray for. 
Those are the ones to whom you try to witness. And sometimes their ridicule and their mockery, their insults, makes you afraid to open your mouth. Don't fear them, which are able to kill the body, but not the soul. Verse 5, And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all of us? And he said, To thee, O captain. In other words, he didn't mean, I have an errand to you, Jehu, and your whole army. I mean, I've got one for you personally. It's just you and me right now. Be like this prophet. It said, so the young man, and then go to the second line, went. So the young man went. In other words, in this manner he went. After these instructions and according to these instructions, he went. He didn't suggest to Elisha sending the oil by FedEx chariot or some other way or Amazon. He went. All the best laid plans in the world... Don't mean anything if you don't go when you're supposed to go. I hear people talk every year, usually around January, but throughout the year about getting in shape or getting stronger, maybe losing weight. Sometimes they'll buy athletic shoes and sweats and a cool beast mode t-shirt to work out in, get a membership at a gym, but they never go. Or if they go, they quit after a few visits and make the 24-hour fitness rich for the rest of the year. And spiritually speaking, this is what happens when people start going to church. You've heard people say, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing this or that. They start going to church, and sometimes there's a fleshly reason for their resolution. Sometimes it is a New Year's resolution. We're always just glad they're here, whatever the reason is, because we got something for them. But people who are motivated externally, people who are willing to make the plans but not go, are described in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. Now, this is the spiritual aspect of it. Those who hear the word of God preach, Mark 4, 18 through 19, Jesus had taught this parable of the sowing of the seed And it said, And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. This young prophet, en route to his assignment, could not allow himself to be concerned about the cares of this world. He could not. The deceitfulness of riches would definitely have been a temptation had he anointed the king, which he was about to do, and then just stood by and said, you got anything for me now? I just made you king. The lust of a high position, far above what he had now as the son of a prophet, would be another temptation, wouldn't it? And if he considered and gave way to those things, then he too would be unfruitful. Verse 6, and we'll have to close in verse 6. And he arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Now that he's obeyed the command to go, this prophet also obeyed the command to do. 
And this is sometimes a forgotten part of the command. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had just taken a a young lawyer to school about the doctrine of mercy. And to his great advantage and benefit, this young lawyer was receptive. And he rightly answered Jesus when Jesus asked him, Who was more righteous among these three who dealt with this wounded Samaritan by the roadside? Samaritan by the roadside. And at some point, this lawyer would have to depart from Jesus' presence. In other words, he would have to go. But Jesus didn't just tell him go. Listen to this interchange in verses 36 through 37. Jesus said, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he, that's the lawyer, said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Elisha told this young prophet where to go, go to Ramoth Gilead. But he also told him what to do. And we'll come back next week and pick up with that. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for the good attention of the people who came, for the ones who have tuned in on the internet. And Lord, we know that your word is profitable. And we pray today that it would profit each one of us as you have determined, that our hearts would be open to it, that we wouldn't shut off truth in favor of what this world tells us, of what the prince of the power of the air, Satan, puts in our minds, but that we would be obedient even when it hurts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.